Welcome to the regular podcast from Editorial Intelligence, the media analysis and networking business. You can see all our broadcast interviews on our EITV channel on YouTube and editorialintelligence.com. Thank you very much for getting up so early. Welcome to the CAS Business School, with whom Editorial Intelligence has a very fruitful partnership. CAS is, of course, the home of the Centre for Entrepreneurship Studies, very appropriately, which was launched here a few months ago by Peter Mandelson. Um, before I hand over to Evan and the very distinguished panel, I will say that uh, I'm often known in many guises as the mother of my three children and the stepmother of my two stepchildren and the wife of and the daughter of the last living Marxist historian and many things, but I like to be known as the uh, granddaughter of an entrepreneur, the great niece of an entrepreneur, and dare I say it, a bit of an entrepreneur myself. What we like to do at Editorial Intelligence is a new form of club, really, which you are all either active or unwitting members of this morning, which is you're gathered here to do nothing more sinister than exchange good ideas. And that's what we do, is we bring people together like you to hear good ideas. And without further ado, it's my great pleasure to hand over to Evan Davis. I will just say that you are all de facto on the record. You're being filmed, you're being podcast. If anyone is suddenly shy, please move very far away from the front. And uh, thank you, Evan. Thank you very much indeed, Julia. And it's a great pleasure to be here. You said. You, you, you welcome and thank them for getting up so early in the morning. This is a lion, I can assure you. Um, I am here not in my today capacity, but in my Dragon's Den capacity. I was worried when the credit crunch came that Dragon's Den would be shown to be a kind of a cyclical phenomenon, really, that was just there for the boom years, uh, rather like all the property programs um, on television. Uh, I'm pleased to say that actually... It weathered the first year of the credit crunch uh, in very fine fettle and has got, uh, had got through it. Um, and maybe that tells us that there's, a, that there's a depth of entrepreneurial spirit in the United Kingdom that Dragon's Den has tapped into on television and that we're going to tap into and discuss this morning. Uh, I think most of us will agree entrepreneurship is a good thing, but I'm hoping we'll get a little bit further than that. The nation has a challenge over the next two or three years. We've discovered that banking isn't quite as profitable internationally as we had thought. Uh, bank goes 4% of national income, uh, and we need to start refilling that little hole that's left. And so never before have we needed our entrepreneurs to rebuild uh, and fill the holes left in our economy by some of the bits that are not going to be as big uh, or as profitable as we had thought they were. Uh, that is going to raise many questions, which we'll discuss. What is the place of entrepreneurship in Britain today? Uh, how is it being affected by the recession? Um, you might have thought that entrepreneurship would be, if you like, damaged by recession. That was my sort of preconception. Um, my preconception was that it was, it was a bit like uh, alcohol and sex, that recession made people want it more. Uh, but less able to uh, engage in it. Uh, but in fact, in fact, it might well be that recession provides opportunities uh, for entrepreneurs that outweigh the, um, that outweigh the, the difficulties that uh, nat naturally come with uh, difficult times in the economy. Uh, and we can discuss what policies and what help entrepreneurship needs. Uh, we have an extraordinarily large panel, uh, large and perfectly formed panel, uh, I'll introduce them one by one. The format is we'll take five minutes from them each. Um, there's been no conferring, no discussion, so if it's a, a sort of complete hodgepodge of different perspectives, uh, be glad and celebrate that, and then we'll open it up to a discussion and uh, very much open to the floor, and I'm determined we will leave promptly at quarter, uh, by quarter to, uh, quarter to ten. Um, Let's, with no further ado, start with uh, Lord Bell, Tim Bell, uh, one of the best-known figures in the UK communications industry, himself something of an entrepreneur, I think it's fair to say, is one of the founders of Saatchi & Saatchi, a small business that uh, most of you might have uh, heard of, uh, famous also for his association with the Conservative Party, and is now chairman and a major shareholder in Chime Communications, PLC. Tim. Thank you. Morning. 
Um, and this is going to be an exercise in entrepreneurship because I'm going to be begin by taking a very big risk, which is to tell you a story. Given I live in the world of slogans, I'm actually going to just rattle off a dozen slogans at you. But before I do that, I thought I'd tell you a story about uh, a famous advertising pitch that Frank Lowe, Colin Dickinson Pierce, one of the best ad men there's ever been, did one day they pitched to Barclays Bank and the Barclays Bank management, this is years and years ago, so they've all gone and died, so I can tell this story without any fear of libel suits. Um, and they did a pitch, at the end of the pitch, the deputy chairman of Barclays Bank, who was on the panel, suddenly got up and said, look, I'm really glad that you people are here today. I've always wanted to talk to an advertising Johnny about an idea that I've had. So for many years, I thought that we should sign our advertising, Bark at Bankley's because I think that's very catchy, it'll become the subject of a joke, and it'll be very successful. Frank told me that he stood there thinking, what on earth do I say to this? When he was rescued by the chief executive of Barclays Bank at the time, he said, and I suppose if we were Nat West, we could write wank at Bestminster. <laughs> uh, anyway, um, they told me I, I wasn't allowed to do the other joke I was going to do, which is, what's the difference between a banker and a pigeon? You probably all know this, a pigeon can still put a deposit on a Porsche. <laughs> um, here are a series of slogans. Business is good, tax is bad and should be very low, redistribution can be good or bad, wealth creation is utterly good and the only thing worth spending your life doing, um, responsibility is good and irresponsibility is bad. If you want a bigger cake, if you want a bigger slice, make a bigger cake. You may recognize some of these cliches and slogans. You shouldn't spend more than you earn. Debt is bad, but credit is good. Isn't that confusing? Because debt and credit are the same thing. Um, free has no value whatsoever, and growth is good. And what we should all be doing is trying to grow the economy and not spend the whole of our time trying to fund the NHS and overseas aid. That's my view. Thank you very much indeed, uh, Tim, for that <laughs> provocative start. And I mean, just, just to, to amplify slightly, do you, do, you think that entrepreneurs, do you think that entrepreneurs are need the sort of low-tax, small-state environment to I get going? I mean, they, they, you, you, because some would say, look, these guys are just born entrepreneurs. They don't, they're not motivated by the I think by that's the like rate. saying, why don't we have any decent tennis players? We have some that are natural geniuses, but actually you have to learn it, and you have to operate in the most attractive environment. And any government, no, every government knows the lower the tax rate, the higher the revenue, and yet all they ever do is increase tax rates. I mean, we live in a world of complete madness, um, where people absolutely know what they're doing is wrong, but they go on doing it. Right. And just uh, just because I want to push you slightly, the the entrepreneurial spirit has coincided with one of the biggest increases in the size of the state. I mean, the, the fashion for entrepreneurship has increased. Yeah, but that, that's because they're creative wealth. If it happens, society chooses to steal that wealth from individuals by taxing them and then spend it on things that they have no interest in or any value in, that's, that's their decision. That, that's what happens in democratic societies. You have to follow the will of the people. So I don't mind that. But what you should do, since that is actually what you're doing, and you should recognise that's what you're doing, you don't spend 12 years in government, which this current government has, and end up with the private sector being smaller at the end of it than it was at the beginning. It is the only engine of growth. It is the only engine that creates wealth and prosperity for the people. And it should be getting bigger and bigger, not smaller and smaller. Discuss. Right, thank you very much. <laughs> right, we'll move... move. Move on to Gwyn Miles now, who... Oh, exactly on the right. <laughs> <laughs> on the far right, I think. <laughs> Gwyn, Gwyn Miles is uh, director of the Somerset House Trust. Um, now, Gwyn is a scientist by training, but um, has worked in museums, really, for the last uh, many, many years. Uh, sorry, Gwyn, I didn't mean to put it like, quite like that. I was, I was digging myself out of that hole. For, for, for a couple of years almost. Uh, Gwyn has been working in the museum sector at the um, Ashmolean in Oxford and at the V&A um, and had a very successful record at the V&A. Took over the head of major projects. She acted as the uh, uh, project director for the redisplay re of the British galleries in 2001, which opened to great acclaim, and joined the Somerset House Trust in 2006. And some of us thought Somerset House was finished, actually, but apparently it isn't. And uh, Gwyn is responsible for making sure the restoration there uh, is completed to great effect. Gwyn. Thank you. Um, well, 
basically Somerset House was built on the site of a royal palace and um, in the 19th century it acted as the centre for government administration and now the Somerset House Trust has been set up and we're quite young, we're only 10 years old um, and we're trying to invigorate this as a 21st century palace for the people. Our task is to preserve and develop the buildings, open them to the public and provide an arts and cultural centre and we do this with absolutely no regular government funding and this is in spite of being in a grade one listed building that is actually owned by the government. You might be surprised to find me a leader in an arts charity on this platform, but the fact is the arts sector has had to become more entrepreneurial to survive. Over the last 25 years, this sector has changed massively, and government funding has had to be supplemented as arts organisations have found ways of earning money and attracting sponsorship. And the the lottery has had a huge effect not just from the injection of capital funding, but the fact that it had to be matched meant that people have got much better at getting other, source, other income in from the private sector. And that has made a big difference to the way the arts operate and, and um, manage themselves. I used to work at the V&A where I was responsible for the delivery of a master plan, which has been unfolding over 15 years. It takes a long time to change these things. And it was aimed at transforming a 19th century museum into a 21st century one. So you can see there's a pattern to the way I work. I'm trying to get into the 21st century century. Um, while we were at the V&A and we became more efficient, there's absolutely no doubt that government providing uh, something like 75 or 80% of your funding gives you a very comfortable security blanket. Um, I moved to Somerset House in 2006 and found myself running a charity with a turnover of only £9 million, but with no regular government funding, I had lost my cushion. But it does give us the freedom of action and it does give us a much keener edge to what we do. The original intention behind opening up Somerset House was that various collections might be housed there and provide another national gallery by the Thames. However, it quickly became apparent that simply opening up collections like the Gilbert Collection was not going to attract the numbers of people required to run a viable visitor attraction with no additional funding. So what has worked for us since opening to the public is a distinctive public programme which includes spectacular events in the Fountain Court, which was um, a great success in the middle of... of, uh, of Somerset House and that's why people think it's finished it's not yet there's a lot to do but we do skating we have concerts and we have film seasons and those work really well and now we've added to that into the mix London Fashion Week which we host in February and September each year but what drives our economy is rental income and our biggest tenant is still Inland Revenue or Her Majesty's Revenue and Customs and we also have the Courtauld and what we have decided to capitalise on is the fact that the building is absolutely brilliant for what it is designed for it is a fabulous 18th century set piece but the building which surrounds the courtyard designed by William Chambers actually housed learned societies the Navy Board and tax collecting offices and for most of this the 20th century this building which looks like a palace but cleverly conceals the fact that it was built as an office block was full of civil servants beavering away and parking their cars in the courtyard so from the 1970s people were trying to get the courtyard open to the public Um, but the question is what were we going to do with it? The fact is it's a building for people, it's, it's for debate and discussion, and they're in the, the stones of the building are the fact that people have been there discussing interesting ideas since it was first started, and the Royal Society was there, Darwin's ideas were discussed there, the Royal Academy was there. It's a place which is wonderful for people to get together, talk and debate, and it's also a very good place to work. Over the next few years, and the timescale is necessarily fluid, depending on the financial situation, the Trust aims to complete the restoration of the estate, create a sustainable cultural community to occupy it, and provide a new cultural legacy for future generations. And to achieve this, we need to complete the restoration of the 18th century buildings, and we need to get public access for the first time to all the wings at ground level so that you can get through the building. We want to open up the spectacular light wells, creating new pedestrian routes through and around the building, and re-establish the link from Covent Garden to the Thames. We want to convert the existing offices into high-quality rentable spaces for the creative industries, so that they act as the engine of the creative economy within Somerset House. And we want to colonise the vaults round the courtyard as studio spaces for artists, makers, designers, photographers and others to stimulate creativity actually on the site. 
Somerset House is already the home to some of the UK's exceptional cultural leaders, such as the Courtauld Institute of Art, the Royal Society of Literature, the Claw Foundation Programme, the Sorrell Foundation, and now the British Fashion Council. And as HMRC retreats, it's now down to, from two-thirds of the space to half of the space, we can bring in other cultural tenants. And this rental economy is essential for us to survive. We want to do it in such a way that we're a world-class home for innovation and creative enterprise. But we need to find ways of funding our public programmes. We want to continue to run a cultural programme, but one that definitely has popular appeal, and it needs to make a profit. We now host London Fashion Week in February and September, and we also want to make Somerset House a major hub for fashion in all sorts of fashion-related events. But most importantly, we want to also explore retail opportunities on the site and ways that we can actually bring the whole site to life. We believe we can do this in a way that encourages young entrepreneurs in the creative industries to set up shop in the centre of London and provide a genuinely inspiring new community. But the challenge in this economic climate is to find like-minded tenants, although actually that's not proving as difficult as you might think. We've, without advertising, people do beat a path to our door. And um, then we want to provide the right environment for collaborative working, and we believe it's a really good thing for entrepreneurs to come to Somerset House. Thank you very much indeed, Gwyn. And do you think in your uh, long life in, if you like, the arts and museum sector, is there entrepreneurship there? I mean, it sort of sounds a bit different, a, a different notion of entrepreneurship to the one that I think t Lord Bell, Tim Bell, has in mind. I, th I think it's quite difficult to be genuinely entrepreneurial if you have a lot of government funding coming every year. And although I think there are some shining examples, I can't think of one now, there are some examples of it, it's, it's rare. And, it's, a, and it, it's, it's something we had to absolutely change at Somerset House. Somerset House had been set up as if it was a civil service department and people thought that the money just came and we actually had to explain to people that if we didn't make a profit we wouldn't actually have the money to keep people doing right. it. So you've actually had to instill a bit of yeah. entrepreneurial spirit yeah. inside the uh, taking it out of the public sector into this trust. Alright, thank you for that. Uh, Andrew Haig is our next uh, speaker. Started life as an investment banker. Uh, joined Coots six years ago. Um, and is, uh, has recently returned, in fact, from creating a private bank in China uh, from scratch uh, with RBS um, and is now the uh, managing partner of the Entrepreneurs Client Group. So get to meet a lot of the people we're talking about today. Andrew. Thank you. I think you know, this is all about how we stimulate economic growth and it, to me it's self-evident that entrepreneurship has to be a part of that and uh, there's no doubts about that but I think there's, there's a number of drivers and I wanted to start and pick up on a point that you made that I think is counterintuitive but actually recessions do help entrepreneurship and you look back and see the number of significant businesses that were actually founded during recessions and some of that is because you know this is a great time to set up a business you can do it cheaply cheaper than you can in a growth part of the economy and also it's a time to uh, invest and expand and clearly not all businesses have built their business model on debt so those that haven't are in an absolute position to sort of take out competitors and grow at that point. The other side is there's obviously a big input that comes into it through redundancy payments being recycled into the economy and people saying I've had enough of large corporate life uh, and go into, uh, into doing it my own thing. And that is supported by also during a recession that you get an influx of government money into supporting start business startups. So ironically, there is a big boost that comes through uh, to, the, to the economy uh, through entrepreneurship during, that, during the recession. Uh, also, you know, we all know that entrepreneurs are the ones that are the most adaptable and easy to change their business model in response to change, change circumstances, far better than large companies, which are a bit like ocean liners. So there is a, there is a big uh, impetus that starts to support that. The final one that I think that really does drive that growth, and I'm not going to spend long on it because I suspect Ronnie's going to want to talk about it, but you know, the new concept that is right for the times of social enterprise is something that I think that government's putting a lot money, of money into now, but generally at the grassroots in terms of SME creation. You know, and Gwyn is, in many respects, is a great example of a cultural social enterprise in terms of building a business there that is actually adding something to our society, but is run on entrepreneurial principles uh, behind that. There are a couple of risks, though, I think. 
Um, the main one for me is that one of the things I think the UK is not good at is having a sense of vision and scale. We're not great at creating global businesses and thinking of that size. Uh, and therefore, what we can do to encourage that sense of uh, thinking big and saying, rather than creating a lifestyle business, I want to create something of scale that will actually have, have a much bigger impact, is one of the challenges, I think, that we have as a society to start to instill that. Whereas, of course, the Americans, for example, are great at doing that, and they just start off thinking big, uh, and quite often it's a case of reining them back rather than encouraging them forward. The other one is, I think, is that you know, we need to get better at our implementation skills. Um, we have, you know, there's no shortage of good ideas out there. It's actually about making them happen. And that's something that I don't think that we collectively, through our education processes and all those other things, instill that in people to actually uh, create those vibrant businesses that can actually survive not just through startup, but then through the early stages and go into growth. Thank you very much indeed, Andrew. Actually, I was trying to think. Businesses worth a billion quid created in the last, created from scratch in the last 15 years. Can anyone? Google. No, no, UK, sorry, UK businesses. Yeah, no, oh, the, the Americans are very good at it. I suppose Ryanair is, actually probably hasn't started from scratch, but can you think of any others? British Isles businesses? Autonomy. Say again? Autonomy. Autonomy, yeah, that's right, that's right. Arm holdings, maybe. Arm. It it's not that many. It's not that many, is it? EasyJet um, Easy and, Easy and Ryanair. Go on, Ronald, what was it? Computer center. I mean, if, if yeah. you take a slightly Strike longer uh, yeah. period, you'd have some. But it, there's no comparison with the United no, States, no. Intel, Sun, Oracle. No, I know. You could just, Google, it's so Cisco, easy to think of American ones, uh, isn't it? Get it is. It is. Top 100. Yeah. No, anyway. Th th sorry, it was just a thought as Andrew was speaking. I mean, actually, Andrew, one of the interesting things that really makes recession's a good time for entrepreneurs, is the opportunity cost of being an entrepreneur falls, isn't it? I mean, the, you know, in the boom, you don't want to give up your good job because it's, you're giving up quite a lot to become one, whereas if you've lost your job, I mean, this is really the time to, to have a go, isn't it? Thank you for that. Okay, next, uh, René Carriel, who's a visiting professor uh, in the practice of management here at Cass Business School, something of a business guru specialising in leadership and culture, uh, has... A, executive or consulting experience with many clients from British American uh, organizations from Pepsi and Marks and Spencer to the Inland Revenue uh, and is the best-selling author of the culture bible corporate voodoo. Thanks Evan. Um, two perspectives. The first thing is that we are so corrosively cynical in the UK that we were uniform about when we went into recession. Everyone was cheering, we're going into recession, we're going into recession. Getting out of recession, no one wants to stand up and say we're getting out. And without that, without optimism as a force multiplier, we're not going to get out of recession. So, so we're stuck there. Entrepreneurs are slightly different. Um, I did a series for the BBC a few years ago called Mind of a Millionaire. And we tried to establish what is an entrepreneur? Is there something special about them? Can we touch it? Can we can it? Can we train it? Can we teach it? Can we sell it? And the first thing we had to do was to define what is an entrepreneur. And we use, to make it easy for us, we define it as a self-made millionaire. And out of a population of 66 million in the UK, we found 70,000 self-made millionaires. Out of that 70,000, 49% were dyslexic. Now, that was really interesting for us. Out of that 70,000, 59% came from a dysfunctional or deprived background. So, screw the recession. These guys, that, they come from a different place and with a different driver. And what we found with these guys, that um, they, marginalisation... They took a disadvantage and made it into an advantage. And they drive no matter what. And historically, if we look at the mega fortunes in history, no mega fortune has been made outside of a recession because they just don't give a toss about a recession. They're going to push anyway. And the first guy I was going to interview was David Gold, the recently retired chairman of Birmingham City. But at the time, he owned Ann Summers, Knickerbox, Gold Airlines, you name it. And he sat in the Sunday Times Rich List just above the Queen. A nice place to sit on a regular basis. And he's worth about 350 million quid. And I was interviewing David, and um, we were just setting up the camera, and we took him back to where he was born, east end of London, just opposite West Ham United football ground, horrible two up, two down. And um, we're setting up the camera, and David's staring out the garden. And I was sort of glibly saying, David, what memories does this bring back? How does this make you feel? Turn around, tears dropping down his face. I said, David, what memories does it bring? He said, nothing but abject poverty. 
And he told me this horrible story about growing up with his brother, Ralph. Just after post-war, father left when he was four or five, mum did everything. And he was, at the time, he was 69, he's about 73 years old now. And I said, but David, you know, you, you keep going, you're still driven, you're still working, you're getting up every day. What drives you? When is it going to be enough? And he said, you just don't get it, do you? I said, no, obviously not. And he said, um, I'm never, ever going to be poor again. Now that, screw the recession, it's nothing to do with that. Now, when we finished the filming, I said to him, the last thing was, David, choose three people from history that you'd love to have dinner with tomorrow night. Which three people would you choose? And he said, Julius Caesar, Jesus Christ, and Mrs. Green. I said, um, who's Mrs. Green? He said, she was my teacher at school. On my last day at school, she said, Gold, you're going to achieve nothing in your life. <laughs> now, a different sort of driver independent of any recession, which is why we need them so much. Tim Martin, who's founder and chairman of J.D. Weatherspoon. I interviewed Tim. Do you know who J.D. Weatherspoon is? The headmaster of his school who told him that he would be a failure. Now, I think these guys are driven, these guys and girls, they're di driven by different things. And my God, we need them in a recession because they play by different rules. And they're not hit by the corrosive cynicism of are we in recession or out of recession. They're just going to keep driving. Long may they rule. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Rene. It's interesting. If you, it, it, this has been done more than once, I believe. If you ask entrepreneurs their life expectancy, they systematically think they're going to live longer than other people think they're going to live. I mean, I, I don't know whether they do live longer, I, I, but they, they clearly are sort of more innately optimistic. That's certainly true of the ones who come into the dragon's den. Um, right, talking of uh, abject poverty and backgrounds, our next speaker is Lynn Forrester de Rothschild. Um, <laughs> I wasn't born that way. <laughs> who began her career as a lawyer um, and is now the co-founder and chief executive of E.L. Rothschild Limited, which is a global private investment company. And um, Lynn has experience as a director of the Estee Lauder uh, companies and since 2000 is on the uh, board of The Economist newspaper too. Uh, Lynn. Thank you, thank you. I am really Lynn Forrester from a middle-class family in Oradell, New Jersey. <laughs> I have to make this across America as well at this point. As I sit here, I, I think of the truth of what Winston Churchill said when he said, we are two nations divided by a common language. Um, I, the, um, I know I wasn't invited here because I am an American, but we are celebrating Thanksgiving today, so I wish all of you a happy Thanksgiving. <laughs> I highly recommend the turkey, and, and the stuffing is worth the calories. But this topic of entrepreneurialism is important and interesting to me, fascinating, because not only is it the silo that I think I've lived my, lived my life in. I mean, my father worked two jobs to put four children through university, and in my case, law school, in my brother's case, is medical school. And we were always taught that in America, anything is possible. Work hard, play by the rules, anything is possible. And so I so agree with you about the importance of personal drive. But what I think about a lot also is the culture in which, in which we're born. Um, Warren Buffett has said about being American, and it's true about being British, that we've all won the gene pool lottery. Because we live in societies where your example of David is possible, where, where we're all uh, able to, to achieve. But there are really differences that, that I've now lived here for 12 years. And um, you know, I think there's a reason. You asked about how many UK companies have hit a, a billion dollars. I think an interesting statistic <coughs> is that between 1987 and 2000, there were 20 companies in America that went from the garage to the Fortune 500. Billions. And there were five in all of Europe, including the UK. So what is it about, about culture? And David Landis from Harvard says that in tracing economic development, the most important thing is culture. That's the most important aspect. Do you live in a culture where failure is possible? Do you live in a culture where you should and be proud of shooting for the stars? And I find in America 
that is much more common. That, that the British still have a sense that, that things should be provided from, from pensions to healthcare. That there's a huge focus on what the government is going to give you. And that there's, that there's not so much resentment about people. In America, 90% of Americans appreciate people who get rich by hard work. I'm not sure what the goal, what, what the statistic would be here. And I think that, um, that, that culture really, really does matter. And I think it's something to think about. And I think it's something to fight for. I think there's, it's not a, it's not an accident that Tim and Ronnie are both very active in the political process because we have to keep our politicians honest in encouraging the individual because I think that's what makes nations great. Thank you, Leo. You should say that Tim and Ronald are on different bits of the political uh, activity. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, the, um, can, can though, I mean, is culture something that you can sort of pull a lever and change? Are there things you can do to affect culture, do you think? I mean, one, one can say and see that the US is very different to the UK in all sorts of ways. Um, is, that a, is, is that a policy changeable Thing. Yes, I think it is a policy changeable thing and I think it deeply affects people. If you live in a nanny state and you expect to be taken care of, you're not going to be out there pushing to create the great new company, great jobs, take risks. A nanny state, I believe, is a, is a negative, um, negative result of capitalism. I mean, Schumpeter predicted it. He said that in a democracy, when the, in a, the natural inequalities that happen, because some people are going to work harder and do better, there's going to be anger and a democracy is going to squash capitalism. And I think we are seeing that now in America. Right now, the, most, the best place for an entrepreneur on the face of the planet is Israel. There's a book out called Startup Nation that is so exciting. If you have an idea, go to Israel. Where did the founder of Google go? He flew right over Europe from Russia and went to Silicon Valley. Um, there was a reason for that. And I think it has a lot to do with culture. And I think, I think the nanny state is a bad place to be. So you're somewhere where Tim Bell is. Well, it sounds like you are. It sounds like you're, you'd be No, I'm to New Tim. Labor. I'm New Democrat. OK. I'm not here. I'm independent. Right. Um, okay, final uh, one on our panel, and fantastic panel in terms of keeping your contributions pithy and to the point. Uh, last of all, Sir Ronald Cohen, who I think probably needs no introduction, um, a chairman of the Portland Capital, uh, chairman of Bridges Ventures, um, currently chairman of the Social Investment Task Force and the uh, Commission on Un Unclaimed Assets too, um, but probably best known to, to most of us as the uh, founding a founding partner and former chairman of Apex Partners, which has had a very big part to play in financing and uh, sustaining and nurturing entrepreneurship in the UK, and really at times seeming like the only venture capital, uh, big venture capital fund in the UK. Ronald. Thank you very much, Evan. And uh, we may sit at different ends of the political spectrum, Tim and I, but actually we have a lot in common. We've worked together, and Tim was involved when Apex moved to the Apex brand. Uh, we needed an international brand in 1991. Uh, so we go back a long way together. We're still appropriately seated. He's on the far right <laughs> and, I'm on the far, and I'm on the far left. And I think I'd like to make two points, I think, Evan. The first is we've made huge progress in terms of entrepreneurship. We're still miles behind being a naturally entrepreneurial society. You certainly don't have the improvisation, the get-up-and-go that you would find in Silicon Valley or in Israel. But a huge amount of progress has been made. And when I kicked off in 1972, there was virtually no uh, venture capital around. In 1981, £30 million a year was being invested in venture capital in Britain, and uh, last year was £10 billion. So admittedly, a lot of it goes into buyouts. There's not enough going into early stage. But the world has changed. And I think the importance of that is that government can begin to forget what its objectives ought to be with regard to sustaining entrepreneurship. Having sort of achieved it, government can feel, you know what, we're in a recession, let's raise tax rates, we've got to worry about the deficit. And forget about the fact that it is a state of mind, 
It involves people being prepared to take risks and put in inordinately hard work. And I totally agree that most entrepreneurs, as I am and as Tim is, I'll speak for myself, are maladjusted individuals who put in <laughs> completely, completely unwarranted effort uh, in, into becoming unconscionably successful. I mean, that's, you know, that's basically what, uh, you know, what drives people. But you need to keep that state of mind and you need to make government entrepreneurial so that it continues to sustain effort. And the current government takes a lot of credit in terms of building up entrepreneurship, in all fairness. And I worked very closely with um, Nigel Lawson, Norman Lamont, the Conservative administration. But we do have a differential between capital gains tax and income tax, which is a crucial aspect of maintaining incentives. And lots of people will say it's not important. With the recession, credit is very scarce. You've had the loan guarantee scheme extended. It helps. You do need uh, credit. And all I would say is that anything that government does has to be geared to increasing entrepreneurial activity. It's the easiest way to increase employment. It's the easiest way to maintain a high rate of growth in an economy. You have to cater not just for the very large business or the business aiming to become very large, like autonomy or arm or computer center. Um, and you've got venture capital initiatives that the government is also encouraging. You've also got to worry about the person that wants to build a small entrepreneurial business, maintain control over it, pass it on to the next generation in the family. But all of these things I think probably most of you would agree with. The area, though, where I think government really has to emphasize entrepreneurship, and, and uh, we've touched on it a little bit today, is bringing entrepreneurship to poorer areas. And I'd like to talk for a couple of minutes about social entrepreneurship, because I think following the wave of business entrepreneurship of the last 30 years, really, since about 2000, we're beginning to see the creation of a wave of social entrepreneurship. So we had business entrepreneurship, and then people who applied methods, different methods to being successful in business, are now beginning to apply them to the achievement of social issues. Part of that has to do with just bringing capital, as Rene was saying, to poorer areas. And Bridges Ventures, which was started in 2002, was really designed to be a sort of apex, investing only in the poorest 25% of Britain. And people said, well, how can you be successful, crime, lack of education, all the rest of it. But the most powerful role model of the Bridges Fund, the first fund will deliver well above 20% uh, return with government incentives, but well above 20% return, is Karen Darby, who is a single mother of three, left school at 16 with one GCSE, and with her business partner turned £300,000 into £22 million in three years. And I support everything that Renee said. The motivation of people to get out of poverty is one of the major drivers for successful entrepreneurship. These areas are completely deprived of capital. It's impossible for an entrepreneur or would-be entrepreneur in a poor area of Britain uh, to access capital. And so focusing flows of capital into poorer areas of, uh, of Britain will lead not only to uh, the creation of jobs, not only to the creation of role models, which are going to be beacons for others to try to do the same, and there's plenty of evidence that if you get less than 5% positive role models in an area, it goes into precipitous uh, decline. Not only those things, but it'll begin to touch something that is fundamental to our society, which is the fairness of the system. All the stuff we read about, about bonuses and about wealth and all the rest of it, has to do with the fact that if you have a high-growth society with low tax rates, the gap between rich and poor gets bigger and bigger. And while the capitalist system deals with its economic consequences and its financial consequences, it doesn't deal with its social consequences. And government is badly placed to deal with some of the social consequences of this gap between rich and poor. The primary problem that government faces is that by giving handouts, it creates dependency. It creates a culture of dependency. When you bring capital into an entrepreneurial pocket, you create independence. And so I won't take longer because I've run out of time, but I think one of the things that we've got to nurture is a social entrepreneurial spirit in Britain. And it requires the creation of a structure to, to support social entrepreneurship 
similar to that that we put in place in order to support business entrepreneurship. I mean, Ronald, you're talking about business entrepreneurship with a social objective, or you're talking about social entrepreneurship of the kind that maybe Gwyn is involved in, or... I mean, social entrepreneurship can mean entrepreneurship to a social end, but your Bridges is about businesses, isn't it? I mean, it's hard-nosed businesses, but with the social objective of doing it in areas that are less, less wealthy. Yes. I say it as a spectrum that goes all the way from social investment or social entrepreneurship that goes all the way from traditional philanthropy where you're just giving money to somebody who needs help all the way through to the bridges model where the locomotive is the financial return and the carriages represent the social benefits and in between you've got all sorts of organizations 160,000 of them in Britain employing 600,000 people who are trying to help society in one way or another by delivering a service or by providing investment. You've got a spectrum that goes from total philanthropy to the use of market forces to achieve social objectives. And what is happening today is that right across that spectrum, you're beginning to get a revolution in thinking from venture philanthropy to the bridges model. Right, okay. Well, uh, ladies and gentlemen, I said um, be prepared for a hodgepodge of different talks. And what's interesting is we've had very different perspectives from everybody, but nevertheless, I think we've had a remarkable amount of um, convergence and agreement uh, and some themes coming up again and again. So I think we probably mostly agree, panel, that the recession is not going to stop entrepreneurs and is not what matters to entrepreneurship. Um, I think we heard a lot about hardship and poverty as uh, drivers to um, entrepreneurship and the culture, if you like, depending on there being a little bit of, <clears throat> there being an edge to the lives of entrepreneurs which can be dampened by excessive nannying. We've heard, uh, I think that theme really started with Tim and we've heard that all the way across. And we've heard that even though culture is terribly central to entrepreneurship, policy is important. Uh, policy is important to the nurturing of the culture uh, and making an entrepreneurial society. I just want to um, get each of the panel to tell me if they have one policy measure that they would like government to adopt that it is not currently adopting, what their kind of dream policy would be, a specific policy, capital gains tax, whatever you want it to be. Uh, so we'll, we'll start with Tim and we'll just have a, a single policy option and then we'll open up, open up to the floor. But Tim, maybe you can just what would be your one policy recommendation? Instead of making rules, teach governance. Teach governance. Just give us the second sentence on that because one. Because the problem with rules is they act as a straitjacket. Uh, and the, 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 the creators of rules simply apply them as though they were some kind of blind, one-size-fits-all everybody. Whereas governance is a sensitive concept of responsibility. And, uh, uh, and I happen to think the work that's been done over the last 10 years on looking at non-executive directors and the, and the whole concept of oversight has been, I don't think it's been perfect, but it's been very sensible and worthwhile. It hasn't had sufficient debate and discussion about it because every, all governments knee-jerk about everything, saying, if you don't like that, let's pass a rule, uh, because they feel better about it. So you can have more discretion if you have better kinds Precisely, of governance. Because yeah. what you have to allow is people's ingenuity, human spirit and imagination to flourish instead of creating a society where you stifle it. Right. Gwyn. Well, I would say that if the government were to invest in social entrepreneurship, which in ways, having said I don't have regular government funding, I don't, I would like to get, I have no capital, so I'd like investment without so many strings around it that it becomes very difficult to take a risk. Okay. Because most government funding for the arts has got so many um, targets and, and hedges around it, it's very, very difficult to then take a risk. All right. Um, I think I'd probably extend the EIS and VCT arrangements to social enterprises because I think what that would do would create a huge shift from the charity sector which is based on grants towards a more entrepreneurial focused businesses that want to grow. I think that would give a real stimulus to the economy. So you would extend them to social, social enterprises, enterprises with, some, with a profit-making yes. profit goal. Yeah. Okay. Rene. Stop penalising wealth creation but encourage it. Yeah, but now that's big. I want to hone you down. I mean... Well, I, just, I just feel as though... It's, we, we pick up the papers every day and wealth creators are moving abroad because we're penalising them beyond belief. That can't help us. That, that's, for me, social, social entrepreneurism is the creation of jobs. 
And I listened to Ronald very carefully, and I love this idea of people really feeling that they can create loads of wealth that provides loads of jobs. It's the best social entrepreneurism. Okay. Stop over-engineering it. All right, Lynn? Before I answer the policy question, I want to clarify something. I think there, uh, at least in my view, there, there was a point put out there. Successful entrepreneurship is not just about getting out of poverty and getting rich. When I started, I had the good fortune, after I practiced law, to work for one of America's great entrepreneurs, John Kluge, who was the richest man in America before Bill, before Bill Gates was born and sort of a lot of you. He, when I, I talked to him about going into business, he said, you can do it, you've got the stuff. He said, what do you want to do? I said, I want to make $40 million. He said, no. He said, what you want to do is you want a vision, you want confidence in yourself, you want to wake up every morning and love what you do and know that you are creating something big and important. That is much more important to me than, than money. He said, don't even think about the money, the money will follow. Sorry, that wasn't policy, but I think there was too much talk about poverty. If all you're looking to do is to get rich, I don't think that makes you an entrepreneur. You're an entrepreneur if you have a vision that you're going to create something that people want and improves uh, the society. See, to me, social entrepreneurialism is almost a redundancy. Because if we get entrepreneurship right, we will, get, we will lift people out of poverty. Because we will create opportunities for everyone because we'll need everybody to work. Sorry, policy, all I would say is spend more money on education. Get people a broader view. If I could do anything in government, that's what I'd do. Okay, and uh, finally, Ronald. Um, first of all, I'd like to agree with, uh, with Lynn and just say that uh, so if you look at my own um, background, my aim was to build a major firm in the financial business, and I knew that I'd do well out of it. The aim was not to go and make a specific amount of, of money. I think I would create a social investment bank and probably give it more money than we have asked for, give it 500 million pounds so that you can begin to innovate in the funding of voluntary organizations in this country. And there's a difference between entrepreneurship having positive social uh, consequences, which it undoubtedly has, and trying to deal with the issue of reoffending in an entrepreneurial way using market mechanisms through voluntary not-for-profits. You're all very social, aren't you? We've gone, we've gone very European on this uh, panel, having heard how we shouldn't be. We've gone very social indeed. Um, no, okay, good. Why do you think Europeans are more social than us? It's ridiculous. No, no, I mean, they're very completely unsubstantial. No, no, no European, I'm, I'm putting us as part of Europe. I'm kind of like, we're, 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 we're sticking. I'm sorry, but what you said was we had become more European. No, no, I say this panel this implies it is very that European. Europe started is a representation of social entre entrepreneurism, no, which is rut tosh. No, 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 okay. Point made. Um, <laughs> right, I'd very much like to uh, open it up to the floor for contributions on what we've heard uh, or other contributions. Uh, we're not just going to take questions and then put it to every member of the panel. We'll, we'll open it up as a discussion, but I do want you to tell us who you are and where you're coming from. We'll take the gentleman there whose hand was first and then the lady here in the front row. Good morning, Paul Pemberton, the Weekend City Press Review. I have a 16-year-old son who is very keen on going into business, and we've heard a number of different ideas as to what the ideal preparation for somebody to go into business, from maybe Lynn talking about getting a good education, um, to Renee suggesting that he comes from a dysfunctional background might be quite helpful for him. So what would the panel believe to be the ideal advice to give to him, please? My ideal advice. Okay, while well, the panel ponder on that, we'll take this um, lady in the front row here. Hello, my name's Gemma Lyons, and at 3.33 yesterday, I incorporated my first limited company. Um, note the first, I'm trying to be American, scale. Um, my question was around media and the influence that the media have on entrepreneurship. Does the media help or hinder? And what's your, what's your view? Well, my view is that it changes depending on how successful someone is. So what you see quite often, I think, is case studies of quirky entrepreneurs who've done something different or interesting, and they receive quite positive press. But then as soon as they actually reach a certain scale, it's, um, it seems to me that we're much more interested in criticizing big business. And that I find really strange, and I wonder if there's, um, if there's something that the media ought to be doing differently, actually. Question, yeah. And in fact, even in America, you get a bit of that, don't you? Everyone loves Apple, and then Apple becomes big, and everyone says, dirty big uh, corporation. Um, I mean, at least I, I'm going to answer slightly on the media one. 
at least we now have more than one entrepreneur in this country. I mean, really, it was Richard Branson for, for the best part of five decades. There's a little bit of depth in the coverage of business. Panel, think about that. We're going to do the advice for 16-year-old. That'll be the last question. We'll come back to that as your sort of last point. Okay, we'll give you each a chance to your one piece of advice to a 16-year-old. And we'll take a contribution from the back there. Yeah, gentlemen, back. Hi, I'm Jeff Quinn, uh, CEO of TM Lewin. Um, I guess I'm probably one of those entrepreneurs um, because I came, I've only got an O-level in pottery and all the other things that go with it. Um, I'm, uh, I'm also an enterprise fellow of the Prince's Trust who I see doing a lot of work exactly in that social area. And I guess the question is, how do you get scale around that? How can you actually sort of look at uh, associations, trusts that are doing well um, and working with uh, people that it isn't necessarily about them creating the next billion company. Some of them might do, but an awful lot of them, it just gets them back into society and then actually they start employing somebody else and it just goes on from there. How do you sort of scale something that's working and get it sort of into a bigger um, thing? And is it, is it with government or, or what? Very, a very good and pertinent point. I'll put that one to Ronald, but first I want to hear Tim on the media and if we've spoken about culture being important, does the media have a role to play in the presentation of business, the way business is viewed? Or does the media just simply reflect attitudes? Well, the media certainly doesn't reflect attitudes. It reflects the bias and prejudice of the journalists um, and, and their editorial management, particularly in the case of the BBC. <coughs> but um, the, um, the, the truth of the matter is that business coverage has grown and grown and grown, and you are one of the people that's helped that happen, and I applaud you for that. Um, and, and therefore, there more is, there's more exposure of business. Unfortunately, bad news is a big headline, good news is a tiny headline. That's part of the culture of, of the media. When Martin Lewis dared to say that the BBC should try publishing good news rather than bad news, he was fired immediately um, uh, for uh, uh, so almost an, uh, an act of irreligious, um, whatever it is the word is, um, I was looking for. Um, I, I think the truth is that you should ignore the media. I think everybody should ignore the media as it happens and pay me a great deal of money to try and make the media more attractive towards you. Um, but I, I, but it, is, it is one of those things. We live in a media world. We live in the information world. Fortunately, um, we're going to get to the point quite sh shortly when Google, the largest, largest public library in the world, is going to publish every single piece of information there is and everybody will be able to access it if they wish. Um, but I, do, I was actually talking to Denise Kingsville before this, which she was just reminding me that when the great drama about the Taliban turnips in Norfolk and the girl that had the affair with Mark Field was going on, that what they complained about was that Conservative Central, they'd said to Conservative Central, do any of these people on the shortlist have a problem? And the Conservative Central Office said, you should Google them. And the chairman of the constituency party in Norfolk said, what's Google? Um, so, I mean, there, you know, we are still in a, in a learning curve situation. Can I just answer about the chap? Because I think that that's a really smart-ass answer. The chap is a six-year-old son. What you do is you get your father to go to a meeting like this and ask five people, not me, five of them, what you should do in order to become a businessman. Um, do any other, any other of you have a comment on the media in particular? The media question is a really smart question. I think the people are smarter than the media, but the politicians are not. And the politicians get sucked in. <laughs> and I think that's why it's really dangerous. And so when the media piles on success, which frankly I do see more of that here in America. See, in America the notion is, if somebody makes it big, that's great. Because you know what? I could be the next one, or my kid could be the next one. In Britain, it's more like, what did they do? Are they really sleazy? Are they this? Are they up to, ugh, ugh, it's a nightmare. And I think the media here does play into it, and I think the American media is getting worse. We have a president who calls bankers disgraceful. That's never happened. So we are on a different glide path in America, sort of toward Europe. Thank you very much. Um, <laughs> which isn't where we probably want to be. Evan, just a second. September 
2007, I was in the BBC Breakfast News Studios, and next door, um, Robert Pesson was reporting on the Northern Rock queues that were coming out, if you remember at the time. I think what, what was different about this is that we live in a completely joined up interdependent digital world. And whilst we were watching it in our lounges in here in London, it was being simultaneously broadcast to Washington, Moscow, Tokyo, Sydney, Johannesburg, everywhere. The lesson we learned that good news travels quickly and bad news travels even quicker. And I was doing a phone in that morning trying to get people not to panic. Saying, don't panic, no deposit is going to lose any money, blah, blah, blah. And this guy phoned and he said, okay, Rene, I've got you. I'm not going to panic. But you will tell me when to panic, won't you? And I think that's what the effect of the media. Very good. Andrew? I was going to say, I think, you know, I think the, the media's done a great job for entrepreneurship because entrepreneurship is now cool. Yeah. I, I just wish that they'd stop focusing on the idea because, in fact, that's the easy story. The more useful story for us as a society is how do you take the idea and make something of it? And that would be a much more powerful public service, I think, for the media to do, to help build us as a nation rather than concentrate on the ideas, because people make great businesses out of really boring ideas. That is a problem for the media, I can tell you that. I'm a bitter experience. No, I absolutely know that. I mean, I think the media, in fairness, does draw a distinction between big, bad business and banks who are big, bad business and young, plucky entrepreneurs trying to have a go. I mean, I think, I think the narrative of the media is negative about big business. The default narrative I would say is negative about big business. The default narrative is positive about entrepreneurship. That would be my, that would be my guess. I mean, I've never heard anybody say uh, Dragon's Den is, a, is too pro-capitalist. And actually, you could watch bits of Dragon's Den and say, my goodness, this is you know, teaching people to be you know, quite voracious. But actually, you've never heard that criticism of it. Um, right, we had another question. Ronald, I want your view on the question we had at the back. Um, about scale and growth in the kinds of enterprises you're funding because it's very easy to get the, the plumber off the ground and running his one-man business but the sort of big deep businesses much harder well i think the professional private equity industry has played a huge role in enabling those who have got a very ambitious views to raise the capital that's required for it Today you could know, I mean, there is argument about startups and early stage where undoubtedly there's too little money now. Uh, the money has tended to go into buyouts. Uh, and uh, we've got a financial system that does not support entrepreneurial activity through the stock market, does not support it through the stock market in the way in which the United States does. And it makes it a lot riskier to try and build a significantly sized business in the UK in comparison with the United States. And I think this issue of, uh, of the financial system underlies a lot of the lack of success of, uh, of Britain and continental Europe in creating major businesses that get into the top 100 companies in the world. Over the last 25 years, six companies in the United States made it to the top 100 in the world. Uh, I think only Nokia and Vodafone have made it to the top 500, and Nokia was Raykel acquiring Vodafone. Excuse me, um, Vodafone was uh, acquired by Raykel, and Nokia transformed itself from a big company into, which was manufacturing boots and cable, into um, a telecommunications company. So I think, unfortunately, we've got to fix the financial system. But if you look at the issue of uh, the Prince's Trust, the Prince's Trust's activities could be multiplied tenfold if it could get access to capital. Is it that way round? It is that way round. It's not. Because there's a chicken and egg, isn't there? One of the reasons why you don't have an infrastructure of finance is that the financiers are saying that we, frankly, we find buyout people queuing up. There's lots to do there. We can make money out of it. And we don't find profitable opportunities. No, it really is that way round. And the supply of money creates its own demand. And there are plenty of opportunities to go and create businesses all the time. There are more opportunities than people can take advantage of. It's very difficult to get hold of the money. And if you've got a young person with relatively difficult background, requires a few thousand pounds, four, up to four thousand pounds, I think the number is for the Prince's Trust, it's about the only place where you can get it. And it comes with mentoring and so on. And what's the problem of the, of the Prince's Trust? It has a portfolio of about 60 or 70 million pounds worth of loans. Each year, it has to go out and add to its funding through philanthropic donations. If you can manage to open 
the gates of the capital markets to the Prince's Trust, you could add another zero to their numbers. And I think this is where the social entrepreneurship comes in. The social entrepreneurship comes into saying, we are now going to create ways in which organizations that have a social mission, like the Prince's Trust, can actually raise money through the capital markets. They can raise a bond, they can raise equity, even though they're not for profit. I want to get Andrew's take on the financial side. I, I think there's a whole, you know, we're not good as a nation of saving, so there isn't that amount of money that is coming into seat puppet. You know, we're not good at looking at how our pension funds invest and actually try and drive that. You know, the banks, we all know where that is and, and about them seat corning that, but, you know, clearly in the recession, the risks for the bank go up on lending to small businesses. There's no shadow there. So there's a whole load around us that says we've got issues put across. Some of it also is we have a hugely complicated system. We have stacks of organisations all doing the same thing, duplicating themselves with big... I'll carry on. Big inefficiencies. So I think that what is happening and one of the benefits that has come out of this... This morning's riveting session on entrepreneurship was rudely interrupted by a real fire alarm at the Cass Business School. So hundreds of people ended up on the um, pavement outside the business school. But luckily, the majority of the comments from the panel had already finished. So we hope you've enjoyed this curtailed podcast. And a thank you to all of the sponsors who took part and indeed the panel.